Well, we are uh, in the Gospel of John, and if you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 17. As you know, we are uh, doing the Gospel of John in reverse. And um, a little bit earlier, Kevin actually read the passage that we're going to be focused on. And so I'm not going to reread that right at this moment. What I'm going to do is put it on the screen, uh, and I'm going to ask that you kind of refer to it. Uh, in your copy of the text in your hand, or that you would uh, look on the screen and just notice that we are uh, going to be in the Gospel of John chapter 17. And what I want you to do is kind of hold on to this uh, main idea. The big idea is that Jesus is praying for us. He's not praying uh, just for the disciples, asking for all who will believe on me because of them. So, Anyone from the generations of faith, which is now you, uh, this is his prayer. And it's a a deep prayer of unity. It's a a desire to see the church and all of the church be one, uh, to be his children together in unity. And I want you to hold on to that thought for a moment, and then we'll come back to it. Uh, in a little bit of time. I I want you to think about something for a moment. Have you ever had a dream that you so badly wanted and then at some point the dream died? Like it just wasn't going to happen. The thing that you longed for just isn't going to come true. There was an expectation. Maybe the season has passed. Maybe the thing that you had always anticipated will be for naught, the reality has evaporated, and you go, man, the dream, the thing I was hoping for, has died. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I have several times. Uh, When I was in third grade, uh, I desperately wanted to be an oceanographer. I thought it would be the greatest job. It's kind of like a marine biologist, but you just take pictures. And I thought, dolphins, they're cute. I I think they're pretty cool. I'd seen Flipper. They do tricks. You could swim with them. I'm thinking all of those things would be awesome. As I grew older, I realized I don't even really like the ocean, if I'm honest. (laughs) If I get far enough into the ocean that I don't see the bottom, I instantly like pee my pants because I'm so nervous. Because there are hundreds and thousands of animals that you can't even see that are down there. And they may come for you. And so that dream for me of being an oceanographer died. It's gone. It was replaced though. It was replaced with being a sports broadcaster. I wanted badly to be a sports broadcaster. I thought it would be the greatest job ever. You get paid to watch athletic contests and talk about them. And so uh, when I was in elementary school, I uh, saved up birthday money and I bought a tape recorder and I would turn the TV volume all the way down and I would push record and I would do the play-by-play for whatever sporting event it was and then I would rewind the tape to listen to myself to make sure that my dream would become reality, that I would someday be a sports broadcaster. 
And uh, I thought it would be fantastic. Uh, that dream has died. Uh, Kevin reminded me that it's good because I really have a radio face anyway. And it's, the truth is, you know, you have to look a certain way to be on TV. And so that dream also died. But in 10th grade, it was replaced. Because in 10th grade, in class, I won the stock market challenge. I don't know if any of you have played that, but all of you are given a fake sum of money in which to place it on stocks, and you have a period of time in which the dividends of those would increase, and then at this set period of time, everyone's stocks would be cashed in, and then you'd figure out who made the most money within that month period. I crushed the competition. I made so much money on stocks, it was unbelievable. And then I realized that you actually have to have money to put on the stocks to then make money. And I realized then that my dream had died, because I didn't have money, still don't. And so that whole dream was gone. It was gone. And so I then transitioned to being a physical therapist. Yeah, I wanted to do that really bad. I started uh, pursuing it, uh, started lining up all the colleges that I would go to and uh, narrowed the list down. And then in my senior year, with all of my hopes set on physical therapy, um, then God said, I want you to do something else, which is what I'm doing now. And that dream of being a physical therapist died. But the one dream that has remained for me all these years is the dream of the church. And what I mean by that is not my particular role in the church, but I've always had this belief in the beauty and in the calling and in the hope of the church, that it actually is something that can change the world, that what it believes, how it operates, the things that it does, uh, the very energy that like kind of flows from the church would uh, totally revolutionized the world. And I believe that. In fact, my friends, I think, usually call me a hopeful optimist about the church, that I'm this idealist. I have these big dreams and hopes, and sometimes we start to actualize them and they become reality, and I'm like blown away. I'm like, can you believe it? The church that got like so excited. And then, you know me, I have all these dreams, and then months later, another dream fails, like it doesn't happen. And yet I go, but there's always next time. It could happen. And maybe if we do it a little differently, or maybe if we try a little harder, or maybe if something happens in a unique way, man, what if it could be? And that has been my hope for, for so, so long. And that God would continue to move. And at the center of that hope and that optimism really has been new community. And I say that because uh, this community has continued, I think, for a long time for me to inspire me. The way that you live, the hopes and the dreams that you have. Uh, so like when I think of new community and I think of mission, uh, I love the fact that when we talk about mission, it is not something that happens out there in some foreign context. While that does happen, we also recognize that it happens here, that it's in the city, 
that each and every one of us are missionaries to Spokane and that that's our calling. And you not only believe that, you breathe that. And so I gain hope. I get excited. I love the fact that new community doesn't see what happens on Sunday morning as the thing that makes the church the church. I love that when we talk about church, we talk about our greatest hope being that you would build relationships with people in the city, that they would begin to know one another, that they would be invited into group or into relationship, that they would grow in that relationship, and that over time, they might come to know who Jesus is, and that the last step of being a part of the new community is really coming on a Sunday morning. That if you had to choose between group life and shared community and Sunday morning, you'd choose that. Because that's the other six days, and that's where it really is lived out, and that is the church. And you believe that, and so hope is inspired. I love that we are an urban-focused community that wants to see this city developed and grow in ways that are transformative. And we don't just say it. We actually believe it. We live it. That this entire place is like a hub of ministry that happens throughout the week. And it isn't just about gathering together on a Sunday that it's care for everyone in the city. I love that we're focused on leadership, that we would actually set aside time and energy to invest in a group of interns every year because we believe that what God does in them and through them as he sends them around the world is amazing. And it happens because we believe in it. I love that we have shared leadership that it isn't one person that runs the church, but that there are a group of elders and men and women and staff that care collectively and share that leadership. And that everyone is empowered, whether male or female, to lean into their gifts and abilities to their fullest. I believe and love all of that. And so New Community has been this place that I go, man, if we can pull it off here, then like, it can happen other places too. That, that God is doing something and will continue to do something. And so that brings me back to John 17 because there's this one amazing phrase in this prayer that Jesus is asking about. He says this, that they may be one, speaking of us, speaking of the church of Spokane, speaking of the church of the world, that they may be one even as we are one, meaning Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinity, oneness, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, that the church would be so unified that there would be complete oneness in it, regardless of any distinction that would separate people, that the church would be a group fully committed to be one. That's his dream, that unity would ooze out of the church. And if I'm completely honest, I would say that uh, of any part of the church that I dream about, that is a part that I go, man, could you imagine what that would look like? In fact, the text says that when that happens, then the whole world will know, right? That everyone will know that Jesus 
is the answer, that there is hope and it is found in Christ. And there's this like amazing prayer that Jesus utters. And then I look at the world and then I sometimes go, I think the dream has died. I wonder if it has. I sometimes wonder if it's possible. For me, the dream started to die when I was in high school. I was a junior in high school. My best friend at the time, Ben, was a sophomore. Uh, Both of us were leading the youth group. We didn't have a youth pastor. uh, And so we had some parents who were uh, kind of in charge and made sure that we weren't killing each other. And then on Sunday morning, um, I would lead youth group songs. Yep. Um, That dream also died. Yep. But I, I would lead the youth group in singing, and then we would like prepare sometimes talks, and they would do talks. And uh, one day, uh, Ben and I came to the, the parents who were kind of running this, and we said, here's, here's the idea. Uh, we know this youth group, they don't have a youth pastor, and we know this youth group um, would love to do this too. And we've talked to these youth pastors and these kids, and what we're going to do is we're going to have like an all-area rally, and we're going to bring four or five churches together, and we're going to share the gospel, and we're going to play games, and we've planned out the games, and like here's the whole, this is what we're doing. We wondered if one of you would be willing to like speak uh, so that we don't have to, but I mean, here's the whole plan, and they're like, Russ, that's pretty cool. But here's the deal. You need to go run that past the pastor. And so I was like, absolutely. So we go to the pastor. We lay it out. We're like, and then this is going to happen. And then this is going to happen. And can you imagine what God's going to do? And the answer was, well, but we're not going to do it. I'm like, what do you mean we're not going to do it? Well, we, we actually don't do anything with that other church. Why don't we do anything with that other church? Well, they believe something different than we do, and that was the day the dream started to die. It's like, man. But I was still hopeful, and so my freshman year of college, I went to the leadership of the college and said, here's this really cool thing. We've got high schools all around the city, and uh, we have an auditorium, and what we can do is, I've got a friend who's friends with this band, and we're going to bring him in. We're going to invite kids from every high school to come and they were like, oh, that's a great idea, but I don't know if we like the band, so why don't you not do it here? And so we are like, okay. We did it at a local high school, which worked out fine. But again, the dream died. And I kept hoping that that wouldn't be the case. And then I became a youth pastor. Same thing, a huge rally, over 400 kids. We picked a speaker in town who would speak Come to find out, one of the pastors on staff wasn't comfortable with that particular speaker because they knew that he went to a particular church and the church had a particular belief and it was different than the one we had. And he was like, no, we're not going to do it because what if he says something? He doesn't even believe that thing the whole church believes. Well, it doesn't matter because it could go bad. And the dream died a little bit more. I've been doing church ministry for 20 plus years now. And I've seen a little bit of all of it, it feels like. I've seen churches get caught up in a rumor mill where one pastor is speaking about another church, telling people don't ever go there because they think or they believe. 
I've seen friends who've been deeply wounded. I have a friend who knows a pastor who did a three-week series, talked about his heart for the nation, talked about his desire to see the whole nation come to know Jesus, but based it on this idea that you've always thought we were a Christian nation, but we're really not. And here are all the reasons why we're not, and this is why we need faith. A thousand people left the church after that three-week series. They didn't like it. I've seen pastors working at one church decide they don't want to be in community with that church anymore, go and plant a church across town, and then invite all of those people to come to this one. I've seen pastors who cultivate a space of vulnerability and openness and a community that's willing to be honest with one another and share deeply, and yet that very pastor would tell you that they are scared to death to ever say what they think. Because if they ever did, they know they'd be without a job right quickly. Because it's different than at least what the majority might think. I was talking to a person uh, that works in ministry on the southern border of the United States just a couple days ago. It's talking about their ministry and what they're doing and the ways that God is using them. And uh, this particular person talked about right now a group of asylum seekers for, from Colombia are trying to cross the border. And as they're coming, the, the church or their organization is working with churches to house people, to say, come on in, use the church building and stay there and let us be a sanctuary for you and care for you. And that church is right next to a church on the opposite side of the street that's picketing the very entry of those people asking for walls to be built. You have two churches, not a mere 500 yards apart, that are miles apart and aren't unified. You see, these things happen again and again and again. What they think about how you interpret the Bible or whether the six days of creation are literal or the issue of women in ministry or gay marriage comes up and they don't know what to do or what to say because they're scared. I have a friend who recently applied for work at an international ministry puts in all of his resume, the very last document that comes to the top of the surface is, a, I believe these 10 things. Please sign here if you want to keep going in the process. He starts reading them. None of them apply to the ministry. It's not a church. It's just an organization. And the final one on the list is, check here if you believe marriage is only between a man and a woman. He doesn't sign it. Why? Because he believes it's okay for gay marriage to happen. And he feels this tension because he realizes what could be an awesome opportunity for both he and the organization vanishes over a non-salvific issue. We do this time and time and time again. We find ways to divide rather than to unify. We find ways to, to be against rather than to be with. I mean, I, c I could go through a list 
of many, many more. And each time that I hear another story, the dream dies a little bit more. Leslie Newbegin made this statement. He says, the disunity of the church is a denial of the promise and a contradiction of the purpose for which the church is sent into the world. I mean, that alone is a pretty powerful statement. The disunity of the church is the denial of the promise and the very contradiction for what the church, for why it was sent into the world. But he goes on and adds this. How can the church give to the world the message that Jesus is able to draw all humankind to himself while it continues to say, nevertheless, Jesus is not able to draw us who bear his name together? How will the world believe a message which we do not appear to believe ourselves? And this is probably the most humbling line in his statement. The divisions of the church are a public denial of the sufficiency of the atonement. I mean, that's strong wordage. I mean, have you ever thought that the divisions of the church are really a scandal to the gospel and to all that it represents? It's basically saying that we do not believe in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ if we alone cannot figure out how to relate and to love one another. So can the church ever be one? That's the question. Is it possible? I mean, Jesus prayed for this thing. Is the dream dead or is there still hope? And I think the hopeful optimism is found in John 17 when Jesus says this at the very end. He says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That phrase again, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. What Jesus is saying is that the love that God has for Jesus, this overwhelming never fading, complete and utterly full love that God has is the same love that he is hoping we embody among one another. That we would be so consumed with love that it would lead to unity. This is where I would love to say that what we just need to do is end the talk here and go, so the solution, it's obvious, love one another. And that would probably be the one millionth time you've heard that in church. Like, you know what? Love one another. That ought to do it, right? That ought to figure it out. And that's why I sometimes go, man, maybe the dream has died. Because if we can't figure it out in a community of people in the same place, in the same city, with other churches nearby, can we ever figure it out? And I'm convinced that what we've tried to do as the church is to substitute love with peace. What I mean by that is we want peace. There's a lot of people that equate unity and peace as being the same idea. 
And then they'll go around saying, look at how peaceful it is. Look at how all the churches are peaceful with one another. Um, there's an absence. There's no conflict because we just all are in places where we're comfortable. And we can spread that out around the entire world. That's why it's one of the most segregated hours in our nation. Because we don't have to be with people that are different. We find ourselves in these situations where we think peace is the absence of conflict, but really peace is the presence of love. And if love isn't there, that's when you find disunity. So while love is the answer, I decided I would make a little how-to guide for unity. Three little ideas that might spark unity, not just among this group, not just among your small group, not just among this group of people that call New Community Home, but beyond this, to churches across the street or down the road or throughout the city and beyond. So, other churches might not follow this how-to guide, but it's my suggestion for how we might embody unity and love for one another. First way to love. They might sound silly, but number one, no name-calling. No name-calling. What I mean is stop labeling people. Don't utter slurs about others. Respect other people. Don't dismiss one another without attempting to resolve conflict. Be willing to sit in tension. Don't call people heretics or label them as deceived. Truth is, if all of us lived 800 years ago and you believed what you believe right now, you'd all be a heretic. Right? And that's not fun. Not fun being called that. Certainly not fun burned at the stake, right? But that's where all of us would be. And so yet we go around throwing this language around at people. People go, oh man, let me tell you this book I'm reading. Oh, don't read that. That guy, that girl, heretic. We don't even know what the definition of that is. And yet we use it. Basically, what we've called it is somebody that believes different than what I believe. Heretic. Right? Instead, Paul has a little idea. He says this, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, above that entire list, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony or in unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. See, peace again comes after love. To which indeed you were called in one body. You want to be one body, then embody love. And it starts with no name calling. Number two, put others first. Otherwise known as stop thinking you're awesome. All right? Stop fighting for your own way. 
defer to someone else. Stop thinking that you're always right. Maybe other people are on to some ideas too. Humble yourself enough to admit that you, that I, we might not have all the answers. We might think a few things, but come into every situation as a learner. I am amazed sometimes at the amount of people that will walk into a situation with absolute certainty, convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that what they believe about the thing is the right thing, until a moment later an expert tells them something the complete opposite and they still don't believe it, because they're convinced, right? I'm every day blown away by the number of things I have no clue about. All the time. I I can't help but every single day be a learner and go, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? I had no idea. And that could be about everything. I mean everything. Some guy was just talking about the, the amount of like bacteria in your stomach. What? Unbelievable. Billions. I mean, more, when you go the bat, want more in that that you flush than there are humans in the entire world. Blows my mind. You can learn from poop. Everything. Everything. Right? That's what I mean. There's so much we don't know about. Charles Spurgeon one time was talking and uh, he was disagreeing with this other pastor in town because that pastor was too high church and that pastor sprinkled some babies around the time of Charles Spurgeon. He says this, he says, where the spirit of God is, there must be love. And if I have once known and recognized any man to be my brother in Christ Jesus, the love of God constraineth me no more to think of him as a stranger or foreigner, but a fellow citizen with the saints. Let me find a man who loves my Lord Jesus Christ, and then he describes this guy, as George does, and I do not ask myself whether I shall love him or not. There is no room for question, for I cannot help myself unless I can leave off loving Jesus Christ. I cannot cease loving those who love him. I mean, that is convicting. You might have a difference of opinion. You might think you know the answer. You might think somebody else is an idiot. If they know and love Jesus and you know and love Jesus, get over it, right? Deal with it. Love them. I think we need to stop measuring our amount of discipleship by any other factor other than love. You realize that's what we do. We're always playing this game of like who's following Jesus a little bit more than the next person. And what we often do is measure how much I'm in with God by all kinds of standards, rarely by love. So we say, well, I know more. I'm more theologically astute, therefore I am a better disciple. Or I do amazing ministry stuff. 
I must be a great disciple. Or I'm a crazy person of faith, and when I believe something, it happens. And when I pray, mountains are moved, right? And then we go, oh, that must make you an awesome disciple. Or you go, man, I sacrificed so much for Christ. Therefore, I must be a great disciple. This might sound familiar to you, the list that I'm giving, because you've probably heard it at most weddings you've gone to. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says this, and it's the only time we ever use these verses, but I'm going to use them today. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That means you could be the most intelligent person and love to hear yourself talk, but if you don't have love, who cares? And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Because love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. If we want the dream not to die, it must be. Which leads us to number three. Third idea, not everyone is like you. Unity without uniformity and diversity without fragmentation is the hope. Not everyone is like you. See, some would describe the church as like a great symphony. And yet what we're doing is asking everyone to come in and only play the violin. As much as I love the violin, there are some other instruments that add depth and richness, and beauty to the orchestra. Years ago, I said that the church is like a salad. Man, it would stink if it was only lettuce, right? There is so much more to salad. I mean, the toppings. Go to a salad bar. Could you imagine going, and then it was just like, well, there's some green stuff. That's it. You'd be like, what happened? I want my money back. This is not a salad. Same, this is not the church if everybody in it has to believe the exact same thing, wear the same thing, act the same way. It can't be the church in its beauty, in its diversity, in its wholeness. Not everyone is going to think the same way you do, and that's beautiful. Not everyone approaches the Word and the church the exact same way, and that's really, really good. Not everyone is going to hear God the same way that you do. Also, awesome. The Spirit may even be saying things different to you than to you, and you're like in the same pew. It's possible. Because you're unique and different, and unlike anyone else in the entire world that has ever been. And the Spirit speaks to you and to me and to all of us. Francis Schaeffer said this, It is in the midst of, of a difference 
that we have our golden opportunity. There's not much to be seen by the world. But when we come to a place where there is real difference, and we exhibit uncompromised principles, but at the same time observable love, then there is something that the world can see, something that it can use to judge that these really are Christians and that Jesus has indeed been sent by the Father. People know that we're Christians by our love. You may have sang that a few minutes ago. They know that we are a community. They know that the Spirit is alive. They know that God is real when they see the church unified. That's what Christ is praying for. I noticed as I was putting together my little how-to list for church unity, it's up there on the screen, I noticed how this is also actually the rules on going to recess in second grade. When you go out, little kids, don't call people by name. Let them go on the swing first. Otherwise, don't think you're awesome. And not everyone's like you, right? You're going to enjoy different kinds of games, and that's good. It's like second grade. But the truth is, if we don't act like that, the dream is dead. If new community can't pull it off, knowing how amazing this group of people is, If we can't pull off loving one another, caring for one another, being diverse, having the same core principles of faith, and yet in everything else going, man, you know what? There is a lot of liberty. Then I don't know if the dream will continue. My prayer is that God would kind of pour into this group like some holy imagination. Imagination is a powerful tool, that if we actually live into imagination, um, things happen that we would have never thought possible. And sometimes I just imagine a future where we don't call each other by names, we don't bear false witness against one another or the church down the street, that we don't mistreat one another or people we know around town, that we place the concerns of others ahead of our own. That we love one another as Christ loved us. And my hope is that God would grant in us the ability to embrace a richer, more robust church full of imagination, but most of all full of unity. I'll leave you with this quote that we have said many times in the past. In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. Let me pray. God, may you help us not to believe the dream has died. That if you prayed it, that if you asked for us to be perfectly one, that it might be possible. That it could be something we strive for. That it could be something we dream about. That it's something we should pray for. And may you help us to be a group of people 
that are so in love with you that we can't help but be so in love with one another that we can't help but live in such a way that the world may know that you are God. And then in doing so, may more and more people come to know that truth. And may there be more people to love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Will you guys stand with me? We're going to close our time with a call and response. And you guys will say the words in bold. God, today we believe that you dwell in all who confess Jesus as the Son of God. God, we believe you invite us to accept each other as sisters and brothers. God, we believe you call us to love each other as we do ourselves. God, we believe you ask us to use our gifts to serve each other in unity and understanding. God, we believe that in unity together, we will come to a full knowledge of Christ. My benediction is from the words of Romans 15, 5 through 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may go in peace and love.